I'm Richard Crocker, and our second reading is from Isaiah 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in, the, in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. The word of the Lord. The world, the world rewards the successful, but the Lord God is with the oppressed. His love and compassion hold up the vulnerable and the weak, and his promises are to those who feel broken and most barren. It's the outcasts, those who don't measure up, that God's mercy, grace, and love come to again and again. Abram was just such a person. Abram was 75 years old. He had no kids, and he was living in his dad's basement. And the Lord God called him. I mean, he really hadn't made anything of his life, actually, at that point from what we know. He's 75 years old. He's married. He's probably been married over 50 years. And the one goal, the one goal of every human being in that ancient Near Eastern culture was to have children. And he had no sons, no children. He's living with his family. And God says, I'm going to make a great nation of you in Genesis 12. I will give you a son and will make you a great nation and through you all peoples of the earth will be blessed. And he probably is thinking, why me? Have you looked at my life? It doesn't measure up. 50 years of marriage and no kids. I'm living here just kind of doing what I'm supposed to do and I'm a nobody. And God steps in and says, you will have a son. And so he leaves the family of origin that he'd been born into he and his wife, and they go. 
But some years later, we're not sure exactly how many years later in Genesis 15, he still doesn't have a son. The only heir in his family is going to be one of his servants. And he says to the Lord, God, where is this promise? And God says, don't worry, Abram. I will, I will fulfill what I said to you. Trust me. And Abram believed God. And it was called to him that he was righteous as a result. This is the hope of light in the darkness. Over the past week and the next couple of weeks, we're looking at that as our Advent theme, light in the darkness. It's the hope of things like Isaiah, of promises to Abraham, even when the darkness is there and it doesn't feel like those things are true. And it's the call of God again and again in the scriptures, and especially through the prophets, to trust him, to look to him, to believe in his promises and in his character and in his nature. But when we talk about a light in the darkness, I think a lot of us will tend to just see the darkness and say, where is the light, God? You know, the effect of COVID has been long and lasting in mental health, in emotional health, in relational health. And I think um, I keep referring to it in my own head as I think that there is a COVID malaise on all of us. It is a fear and an anxiety and a stress that we're not sure where things are going. Things that we used to be able to understand and could figure out, we don't quite have it all figured out anymore. And as a result, there is a lot of tension and under, just uh, like underneath depression, actually. It feels dark. We don't even know what it is that we're anxious about or depressed about, but it's there. The Christmas season, of course, is supposed to be the overturning of that. It's that joyful season. It's the joyful season of things that you look forward to. It's a season of gathering, gathering with family and with friends and of great memories. And I think for many of us, that is the case. The music, the food, the, the things that we do every Christmas or on the second weekend of Christmas or the places we go, our traditions, they're all there and filled with joy and excitement and little kids get really excited about it. But I think for others, and probably many in this room, a Christmas season is not a thing of joy and of hope. It's actually a reminder of losses, of being alone at a time of year when other people seem like they're all doing stuff, of pains that you've experienced, of the Christmases that didn't quite add up. And so the promises of God in Isaiah are the things we're going to turn to today because they speak into that darkness, that aloneness, that hopelessness, and that pain. In Isaiah 56, I, God is dealing in categories of meeting the needs of the shamed and the dishonored. He's speaking to those who worship him, but in the world in which they live, they were excluded. They were considered inferior. They didn't belong. But throughout the section that we're reading Isaiah 56 today, but from Isaiah 53 to Isaiah 56, it's a description of the God who is filled with compassion for the vulnerable and the weak and the barren and the outcast. And it's a God who again and again promises to gather people in, to restore their fortunes, to give them hope in the midst of their despair and darkness. And he assures the, the two categories of people in Isaiah 56, that you do belong because you belong with me. And one day you will experience that in full. The first category of person that we get in Isaiah 56 is the foreigner. 
This is how it's read in, in verse 3, the first half of verse 3. The Lord says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. The Lord will surely separate me from his people. That phrase, surely separate, is actually a double root. It's separate, separate, or separating, he will separate me. It was a Hebrew way of emphasizing something, of basically saying, I know this. I, I, of everything I know, I know that in the end, the Lord's going to separate me. Basically, cut me off, cut me out, exclude me. Everything of my experience, as I've tried to enter into the people of God, says the foreigner, is that they keep pushing me out, which means probably in the end, I too will be cut out. If I know anything, I know that this is where it's going. And the foreigner in that ancient culture had every reason to believe that. In the ancient Near East, not in Hebrew culture, but in the ancient Near East, it was a, well actually in Jewish culture as well, it was a blood and clan-based culture built around your land and your heirs, and everything was tied to your clan. People who were like you, your same ethnicity, your same blood relatives. And there was actually no rule of law for those outside of your clan. Which meant if somebody was a foreigner traveling through, it was incredibly dangerous for them. Because you could do whatever you wanted to them, and they had, they had nowhere to turn for justice. Now when Israel came along and God gives them their covenant and they are established as a people, he says, you will not be like that. You will protect the foreigner and provide for them. And yet, even in Israel, they were still second-class citizens. There were places of worship that the foreigner could not go, even if they had given themselves over to Yahweh, to the God of Israel. You were never fully in if you were not Jewish, if you were not an Israelite in that ancient culture. And the question is, is it any different today for somebody who is a foreigner? I mean, we think, we look at that or we hear that and we say, oh, you were, you know, uh, that you had no rule of law or you couldn't enter the temple. Well, that's, that's so backwards. We can, you know, we'll welcome anyone. And yet, anybody who is from another country knows that that's not your experience. There is a great fear and anxiety if you're an undocumented person here. If you don't speak with the right accent, right? People instantly identify, oh, you're from India. Oh, you're from Birmingham. Either one. <laughs> they know that you don't belong. Ask somebody who is multi-generation Asian American. How many times they've been asked, where are you from? Atlanta? Richmond, D.C., where are you from? Always feeling like you're outside. You don't speak the language. You don't speak it with the right accent. You don't look like whatever you're supposed to look like. The Lord will surely separate me, says the foreigner. And you know, even if that's not your experience, all of us, as human beings, we all have a deep desire for acceptance, to belong, to feel at home wherever we're living. And yet, many of us struggle our whole lives with feeling like we fit in, like we can be accepted, like we belong. 
And in church, too, you can feel that way. I've talked to people who said, like, they, they just feel uncomfortable in a church setting, even one as generous and kind as ours, because they feel like a fraud, or they're not sure they buy in, or people are going to know they're different. You don't feel like you belong. We all want to belong. And the foreigner in this passage is sure that in the end he'll be cut off. His whole experience has told him that. But God says, that's not the case. Hear my promise to you in verse 7. I will bring the foreigner who joins himself to me, who holds fast to my covenant, I will bring to my holy mountain. I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. I will bring you to my holy mountain. That's Jerusalem and the temple mount. I will make you joyful in my house of prayer. That is the temple where in the inner parts uh, a non-Jew could not go, but God is saying, in the end, I will let you into this space with me. Your offerings and sacrifices will surely be accepted. You will surely be accepted. It's a reversal of the phrase earlier where they feel like they're surely going to be separated from God, and God says, no, 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 I will surely accept you. As certain as you are that you're going to be excluded, I am declaring to you, you have been accepted in me. You have been accepted because you belong to me. Not to that country. You belong to me, not to those people, not to that peer group. You belong to me. I accept you. Find your joy in me. The first category of people are those who feel like they don't belong. The second category is the eunuch. In verse five or verse three, the eunuch says, Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Now, if you haven't, you know, kind of had a teaching on this, um, a eunuch, in the, especially in the ancient world, was a not uncommon thing. It was a man who had been castrated in order to serve as a high court official. Sometimes slaves were taken into captivity and they were turned into castrated officials so they could serve in the home. Um, and one of the reasons for this, and sometimes people did it on their own choice, they did it in order to gain access to the high courts. And in that ancient culture that was patriarchal and all about having children and heirs, and where kingdoms and princes were establishing their reign by having sons who then carried on the throne, if you had high court officials who also were having sons, they were a threat to you. They were a threat to taking over the throne, or if you killed them, their sons would come after you later on. But not so with a eunuch. With a eunuch, you had nothing to fear. Their sons were not coming after you. They were not a threat to your harem. And so some men would actually choose to, to become a eunuch in order to gain access to power and wealth. It was in order to achieve status, a sense of significance. That ancient culture valued children and having children our modern culture values success and performance. The eunuch is saying, I buy into my career and not family. And yet, the eunuch in this story or in this passage is anxious about his status and significance. He says in despair, I am just a dry tree. In other words, he's a tree that is dead, that is literally fruitless, and of course, there's the metaphor on several level, levels there. But he basically is saying, because of this status in this culture, I am lifeless. I have nothing. I am worthless. 
and I don't really have a future. I am without hope. God says to him, Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. I will give within my walls and within my house. I will give you a home with me. A monument and a name better than sons and daughters. A monument and a name meant that you would be remembered for generations. That's basically what it's saying. Abraham had a well. The woman in Samaria says, this is Abraham's well. They built up the well, they, they established it, and they remembered Abraham, their forefather. Somebody who had no sons had nobody to build that monument for them. They would not be remembered. They would be cast off. But we don't care about being remembered that much. We actually don't. We want money, success, fame now. If I can't have it in the next 40, 50 years, 10 years, what's it worth? I don't care if they remember me 100 years from now, I won't be around. But in that culture, you didn't care about your success today, you cared about being remembered. It was the value system of that culture. In the ancient Near East, both Jewish and non-Jewish culture, descendants and heirs were everything. Because as I said, blood and clan meant everything and so did your land. So in order to be on your land, you had to have heirs who would keep your name on that land. So that land would stay in your family's name forever and continue. And you would be remembered by your grandsons and great-grandsons. Your descendants for generations would remember you. And that would bring you great honor. The more sons you had, the more land you had, the more heirs you had, the more status and honor you had because you would, you would last forever. It was their way of becoming immortal. You became immortal by having sons. The eunuch had no children, and he would never have children. He would have no heirs and no one to remember him. Didn't matter how much power he had access to or how much wealth. He was a nobody, and he had nothing. The God of Isaiah, the God of the Bible, the God from Abraham through to the end of the whole story is a God of compassion. And God says in this passage that he will share his eternity with the person who has no posterity. That eunuch will not have sons to remember him. God says, I, I will remember you. This whole phrasing, this, this verse is radically offensive to the ancient Near Eastern ear. It overturned the tables of everything they believed in. But it was also astoundingly, amazingly good news to the eunuch himself. Could I really have a monument and a name? Could I be accepted and belong? Greater than sons and daughters? Where is this hope? And of course, that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about God entering human history and fulfilling the promises he made to his people. In Christmas, God enters in, in the person of Jesus, into the darkness and despair of this world. In fact, to experience it on himself. You know, in Isaiah 53, the prophecy, it says that, 
he had no descendants. He was childless. Jesus was a single man who had no children. Not unlike the eunuch. And while he was an Israelite, when he was executed, they executed him outside of the walls of Jerusalem. You executed somebody outside of the city walls in order to be a final forsakenness. It was a final way of separating them from your people. So Jesus is executed, crucified outside the city walls to say, you do not belong to us. You've been cast out of us. You're not one of us. We forsake you and God forsakes you. And on the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Separated me, forsaken me. Jesus was the dry tree. Jesus was the one who was separated in order to make a way for all people to be accepted, to have a place, a name, to belong. The gospel is written into this passage. One commentator summed it up this way, God does not deal with people on the basis of their ethnicity or exclude people because they are different. God invites all people to worship him without regard for their race, country of origin, language, or former lifestyle. In other words, in contrast to that culture, the question is not who you are by birth, or even who you are by your life history, but rather, who will you worship and serve today? At Christmas, God enters the darkness and brings the hope of fulfillment of these promises. And then they continue on in the birthing of the church. Actually, we see a lot of the promises of Isaiah 56 fulfilled in the birthing of the church. Think about this, the first convert, well, one of the first converts that's named in the book of Acts, which is the story of the church, is the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. So think about this, the Ethiopian eunuch, this is a foreigner of another race, is a black man who is also a eunuch, and he was incredibly powerful. He was the uh, treasurer to the queen of Ethiopia. At great cost to himself, both in terms of danger and money, he traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem on that Pentecost. That was not a simple trip. He comes all that way in order to worship the God he had come to believe in. The status that he had sought in being the eunuch, potentially, all the wealth that he had did not satisfy. And he had found in some scrolls this God of Israel, and he said, I want to go and worship him. But what happens when he gets to Jerusalem? He can't go all the way in. Jesus overturns the money changers because they are in the area where the Gentiles were supposed to come and worship. The Gentiles couldn't come anywhere near, and on top of that, he was a eunuch. And based on Deuteronomy 23, he couldn't come anywhere near because he was dismembered physically. He was out, out. He had come all this way, months of travel, all of his money, sacrificing the potential of his life being killed as a traveler in a foreign country in order to worship God, and he couldn't worship him. He's leaving Jerusalem on his way back to Ethiopia with a scroll that he probably bought in Jerusalem. It happened to be a part of Isaiah. He's reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't understand it. He's like, what, what is this about? Like a lamb led to the slaughter? As for his generation, he was cut off from the land of the living. 
Who is this who had no sons? Who is this who was sacrificed for the forgiveness of my sins? And he hears that it's Jesus. And he's brought in. The spirit falls on him and goes to Ethiopia with him. God is doing something new at Christmas and at Easter and in the birthing of his church. The church, local, all of a sudden is very different than every ancient temple. Every ancient world had a temple and a God and a language and a culture that you had to buy into. But with Christianity, the gospel goes out and it meets and fits into every culture. The Bible is translated into other languages. You do not have to have a stone cathedral, thank goodness, or a choir to be a church. You can go anywhere in the world and you can find churches that look like the culture of the local place because God is coming to meet people where they are, not say you have to look like one of us. And Jesus himself says, it does not matter whether you have children or not anymore. My family are those who serve me. That's my brothers and sisters. Jesus never had kids. Paul never had kids. The church becomes the new family, not based on blood or marriage, but based on faith in Christ. In the church, God begins to fulfill these things. And yet, and yet we know they're not filled in full. Many of you can experience the positives of God's grace and mercy through faith in Christ. And the joys even of something like the church redrawing what it means to belong. But we live in an already not yet tension. Already the promises of God have begun to unfold in Christ, but not yet do we experience them in full until he comes again. And that's what Advent is about. It's about the longing for Christ to come again, not just at Christmas, but the second time to restore all things, to push away all the darkness. In, in that space, if you fit somebody who feels barren, like the eunuch did, single, or childless, or a widow, or same-sex attracted, and celibate, if you are divorced, if you feel alone at all, or just that you don't measure up, there's a longing of not yet. But hear that already, Christ's view of you is not that your worth is based on having a big family. You matter as you are. That gift of Christ and of the gospel was absolutely radical in that culture. And it still speaks to us today. You matter as you are. I died for you. Not because of what you've done or your kids or how big your family is or how perfect your marriage is. I died for you and I love you already. And one day, the not yet, you will be at home with me forever. And you will have the family that you've always longed for and never experienced in full. To the barren, he says, I will give you a home and a family. And to those who lack belonging because of race or nationality or language or just because you're the sort of person who really just has felt like an outsider your whole life for whatever reason, the God of the Bible through the gospel says, already, already, I accept you through Jesus and you belong to me fully. One day, one day I will wipe away all of your tears of not belonging. And one day I will welcome you into my Father's rest. How can we know this? Because God 
from beginning to end, is a God of justice and righteousness. At the beginning of our section in Isaiah 56, verse 1, the Lord says, Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. These are two key Hebrew terms in the Old Testament, mishpat and tzedakah. If I misspelled those, you can tell me later. In these two terms that are often combined together, we have the combination of everything we long for in this world. Mishpat, meaning justice, is the created order as it was meant to be. So that includes the creation itself, physical creation, it includes systemic brokenness, political systems, economic systems of brokenness being righted to the order that they were intended for in Eden. That's what justice mishpat is. And righteousness is all about right relationships. It's relationships in a covenantal relationship of shalom with God and with one another. It is harmony and peace with God and with one another. Relationships as they are meant to be. To be physically, socially, corporately, interpersonally as we were meant to be. Mishpat and Sadaqah. The God of the Bible from beginning to end, is a God of justice and of righteousness. When he calls his people to do justice and keep righteousness or keep justice and do righteousness, he's saying, do this because this is who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I am doing. Live now as you will one day in heaven. He has already come in Christ at Christmas to offer us his mishpat and sadaqah. And he will come again to establish his eternal justice and righteousness. And when he comes again, it's not going to be a subtle thing. In uh, the Monday reading from our Gospel of Advent devotional, Rachel Gilson, who's writing in that one, talks about how when the Lord comes again, the second, the advent, the second coming of Christ, it's going to be in justice and righteousness, and it will be a fearful thing. And it's not going to be subtle. It's not going to be in a manger in some backwater place in Palestine. It is going to be obvious to everyone, and it's going to be a fearful and dreadful thing, unless you are in Christ. If you are in him, you have nothing to fear. And Jesus says in Luke 7, therefore, because you don't know when I'm coming again, watch and pray. And I, I wrote down, watch and pray. What does that actually mean that we're supposed to do in this Advent time, this time of longing and waiting for Christ to come again? What does it mean that we're supposed to watch and pray? And my instant reaction is to think like we are supposed to watch um, the news, the world around us, like, okay, see the signs. What's happening? Is Christ coming again soon? Read the stars, right? What I find myself doing more often is watching my own circumstances. I look, when you say watch and pray, I'm looking at my life and the things I'm anxious about, the things I want to happen in a certain way, and I pray for those. See, I'm watching and praying. But when I look around me at my circumstances, what I do is I look for good signs. I set them up all the time in my life, hoping for good things to happen today, tomorrow, I want to see the evidence that God is working and good things are happening. And you know what? My peace and my joy are related to my circumstances on any given day. 
whether that is related to COVID or the church, my kids, my football teams. There's a lot to despair. And when I look at the circumstances, the news on any given day in my own life, my peace and my joy are so fleeting. But the call of Jesus to watch and pray, it's not actually to watch our circumstances or even to watch the news. It's to watch him. Psalm 123 says, as the servant looks to the master, as the handmaiden looks to her mistress, so my soul looks for you. Look to Jesus. When he says, watch and pray, he says, look to me. Look to me. Wait upon me. The call of Isaiah is, Look to the Lord, trust in the Lord, wait on the Lord. Don't look around you, look at the Lord. Look at the God of compassion who has compassion for the vulnerable. Look at the God who promises children and family to the barren and the eunuch. Look to the God who welcomes the foreigner, the outsider, the outcast. Look to him. What does he want to say to you? What is his character like? What is he calling you to today? How does he want to speak to you? And remember this. His arms are big enough for you. The very last verse we read said, the God who gathers outcasts of Israel says, I will gather yet others besides those already gathered. Whatever your weight today, whatever your despair whatever your anxiety or fear, the Lord says, come. I'm not just gathering the eunuch or the foreigner, I'm gathering you. You and your brokenness, you and your weakness, you and your sadness and your darkness. Come, come into my arms and look to me. Let's pray. God, our loving Father, in the midst of this broken and dark world, we need a light. That light has come at Christmas, but we still live in the already but not yet tension of this brokenness and our own brokenness. Reveal to us this morning your love and compassion for us, your promises of family, of belonging, of acceptance, of a hope and a future. And let us look to you as we await your coming again in glory. Amen.